This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So just briefly, last night um, we talked about embodying awakening and we talked about um, <clears throat> two practices that we do in Ordinary Mind Zen. And the first one, just sitting, resting in awareness or resting in presence. And we talked about how that is something that we continue to do throughout the day. And it's a practice based upon the Zen principle of no gain, which is based upon the principle of original enlightenment. original enlightenment which is obscured by our various vexations, fixations, reactions, <coughs> dualistic ways of thinking and conditioning and trauma and so forth. <clears throat> so our inherent completeness is often something that we find difficult to access. One of the things about just sitting practice in traditional, even in like uh, in Joko's time, um, one of the very useful things about sitting practice is to sit with whatever is arising in the moment and practicing being with it as, as completely as we can. We talked last night about running away from the moment or trying to escape from the moment. I mean, one of the ways of traditional design of a Zen seishin or a retreat is a lot of sitting practice uh, for various periods. And in those older days, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s even, um, um, it could be very daunting to sit many many hours and you could certainly feel like uh, getting out of them. <laughs> um, but there was something useful about that and you know, Joko grew up in those times where she, if you'd been on one of her sessions, there was a lot of sitting. That was useful. Um, but in our Sangha we don't do as much sitting. Uh, and, um, but still, there is an opportunity, given the fact that we don't normally, you know, uh, focus as much continuity as we can on practice as, as in a retreat like this. Um, but um, 
in our practice, maybe sometimes we can actually get into quite pleasant states, um, uh, sometimes uh, sitting, and that's fine, it's meant to be joyful. And, uh, and uh, so in our kind of uh, formal practice and on retreats, sometimes you might bump up against discomfort and, and try and be with it. Sometimes you might have something, emotion coming up, just try and be with it. Um, but sometimes it, it is possible for you know awakening to presence and awakening to awareness. It can still sometimes bypass some areas where we get caught in our everyday lives, especially in relationships. <clears throat> a, a lot of our previous trauma is in the context of relationships, whether it's with, as a child or as an adult. So sometimes a retreat can, can sometimes bypass that. So that's the, the other aspect of the practice is what I was been talking about last night being the inquiry or the inquiry. Um, where we um, um, intentionally um, more or less starting with this question, what is this? We explore what's going on for ourselves in a more systematic questioning kind of way to try and uncover where we're getting hooked, where we're getting caught, where we're getting stuck and, uh, and, uh, and trying to bring that to the light of awareness because it's the awareness that will allow us to dissolve that and heal that by, by being able to be with it and see it for what it is. And what it is is often a, 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 a belief or a thought that which has been welded into the body in some way. So that's what we talked about last night. So this morning I wanted to first of all um, show how this inquiry practice or inquiry practice is actually um, embedded in the Zen tradition as well, in the form of uh, koans. Um, so, um, this is a koan that I've um, shared with you uh, many times, and, but some of you probably haven't heard it. Um, it's one of my favorite koans. So, koans are just basically um, stories of Chinese Zen masters. Uh, that were collected together around about the 12th century, in this case by a, a guy called Wuman. Um, and, um, and he collected a, this, this gateless barrier of 49 different stories which formed these koan collections. So this one is called uh, uh, Case 41. Um, Bodhidharma pacifies the mind. <coughs> and the story is, um, Bodhidharma faced the wall. The second ancestor, so Bodhidharma was the first ancestor, and uh, this, the man in this story was to become the second ancestor. The second ancestor stood in the snow, cut off his arm and said, your disciple's mind has no peace as yet. I beg you, Master, please put it to rest. 
And Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind and I will put it to rest. The second ancestor said, I have searched for my mind, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma said, I have completely put it to rest for you. So one of the key aspects of that story is um, when the second ancestor says, uh, I have searched for my mind, but I cannot find it. And um, so in both the Zen tradition and also in the Tibetan tradition, there's a, an inquiry, a, a traditional inquiry practice, which is called the unfindability inquiry. And uh, so that's one of the examples of that in, a, in an old story. So I'll say more about that a little bit later. Um, for those of you who, who perhaps don't know who Bodhidharma was, he's a legendary mythical figure based upon the fact that um, uh, Brahmins from India did sometimes come to China. So about 520 AD, legendary Bodhidharma uh, came to China by boat. And uh, he had a famous meeting with an emperor um, and uh, called Emperor Wu. And um, Buddhism had been around in China about 400 years before Bodhidharma came. So Bodhidharma is the founder of Chan, Chan being Chinese, Zen being Japanese, so Chan Buddhism. So Bodhidharma is seen as being the first ancestor. And of course you don't have to take these stories literally, I mean, cutting off his arm. Although in some practices, some cultural practices, even in Japan sometimes people would cut off a finger. But, um, but basically um, the kind of um, um, motivation for uh, awakening, cutting off your arm, I want to see the equivalent motivation. <laughs> we, just, uh, we just make it, in our way of speaking, we would say make it a top priority. Make awakening your top priority in life. Basically, just saying that. Make it a higher priority than anything else. Um, so, um, this, 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 the, the, the story about the meeting of Bodhidharma with Emperor Wu is important. And um, so, the emperor was a practicing a, a, a practicing Buddhist, and uh, had lots of wealth and lots of power. And uh, he had uh, lots of teachers, so he had a pretty good understanding as well. And uh, so this, uh, this sort of... The Chinese used to call people from outside of China barbarians. So this crazy, raggedy-looking barbarian called Bodhidharma. <laughs> He's always often painted with a gruff-looking face. Um, uh, uh, t uh, having this interview with the, with the emperor, the most powerful person in China. And the emperor says to him, um, I have endowed temples and uh, authorized ordinations. Um, what is my merit? And Bodhidharma said, 
no merit at all. <laughs> and, you know, merit, even in these days in Buddhism, is a sense in which um, we gain merit by freely giving, um, by yielding, by, um, and, um, by supporting the monks or supporting teachers, giving, giving to the community. Um, the, uh, the emperor obviously had a lot of wealth, so he built you know, temples and monasteries and supported the Buddhist orders. And, the, uh, and, and, uh, and, and of course, in, in those days, and, and still in, in Buddhist countries in these days, the uh, notion of merit was also connected with the, um, the notion of reincarnation. So the sense in which you could, you know, uh, earn various merit points in this life and be reborn again in a, in a more uh, kind of uh, benign kind of circumstances in your next life. Um, so this this idea of merit was, uh, you know, um, something that everyone believed in, and Bodhidharma says <laughs> no merit at all, and. Uh, and so, what a shock! Um, you know how 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 is Bodhidharma to speak to the emperor like this? And so the emperor says, "Well, what is then? What is the first principle of the holy teaching?" So, first principles are to do with um, metaphysics, and I will give a a brief introduction to Buddhist metaphysics in a minute. So he says, so the emperor says, what is the first principle of the holy teaching? And Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness, nothing holy. And just to finish the story, so vast emptiness, you know, in this sense it's a similar metaphor to boundlessness, and uh, nothing holy. Um, maybe that, maybe the, uh, the the emptiness is the, the reference to boundlessness is the is the no form the nothing holy is maybe the form and uh, and finally the uh, the emperor is so stunned he says well who are you standing here confronting me you know and he goes bodhidharma goes i don't know <laughs> and uh, so that in a sense again it's kind of like referring back to the unfindability of the self in a sense um, um, so, but the, the, the emperor would have had a, a pretty good knowledge of these things. Um, and um, so in, in um, Mahayana Buddhism and in, in Zen Buddhism, there's uh, the, the Buddhist metaphysics, first principles, things relating to things like being, identity, um, uh, time, space, those kind of really fundamentals of the universe. Um, what's known as conventional truth in, in a Mahayana Buddhism is basically the relative reality, so the, the, the dual world that we live in, this world that we live in, the world of form, and in this world uh, of conventional truth we assume things exist and we go about our lives, and uh, so that's where we live as separate souls, and there's us and them, and there's other nation states, and we have, uh, we're all 
conditioned by language and so forth. And we all live in that world of conventional truth. Uh, but then in Mahayana Buddhism there's the, uh, the second truth, uh, which is the more esoteric truth, which uh, would have been more the, uh, the understanding of the, of the monks and the teachers of those times, basically being the, the notion of the, uh, the absolute, or the, uh, the notion that uh, of nothing exists, or emptiness, no thing. Um, the world of the realm of non, non-duality. And the emperor would have had a pretty good understanding of those two truths. But then there's the third truth. And, uh, oh, by the way, too, the, the absolute is sometimes often referred to as the, as the, as I mentioned before, as the unborn and the undying. Um, neither exists nor doesn't exist. And... Um, the absolute can also be referred to as unconditioned awareness. Um, uh, and you find this in, in Tibetan Buddhism as well. And uh, this unconditioned awareness is what we were talking about in the Heart Sutra as well. It's what we're trying to access. To, when we say rest in presence, rest in awareness, we're resting in unconditioned awareness. Uh, and um, but there is a um, there is a third a third truth or the one truth, both of them the, both of those are true, but the the, the third is the middle way, and uh, the, the middle way basically you see both they're both the, the uh, um, they're both two sides of the same coin. Um, so. It's like we were talking about before, the um, form is dependent upon formlessness and formlessness is dependent upon form. And uh, we can get stuck in either side of the equation. We can get stuck in the relative world of separateness, which most of us are, or we can get stuck, which is more unusual, in the world of uh, uh, non-duality and and, um, there's a natural expression in Zen called the Zen sickness, where you can actually bypass a lot of things by hanging out, or either, either genuinely or theoretically hanging out in, in non-duality and presence, and uh, you know, going around thinking, "I am awareness," and uh, um, why are you asking me to wash up? I'm, I'm awareness. <laughs> um, we can get silly in, in, in some of those ways, and. So the, after, I mean, the whole point of, the, of, of Zen and other traditions is when awakening to the Absolute, awakening to boundlessness, to awareness, then has to be integrated back into everyday life again so that we're able to bring that awareness. So it's kind of like uh, another way of thinking about it is the foreground and the background in the Gestalt switch. So we, we're usually in the foreground, which is the movie, uh, and we identify with the character in the movie, and other people are characters in the movie. Uh, the, the gestalt switch is actually seeing ourselves as the screen, or as awareness within all of this is happening. And um, 
one of the ways we do that is by pointing, pointing to awareness all the time. Uh, and keep dropping into it, keep recognizing it, keep recognizing it, till you start to get that subtle shift happening. So the, uh, the, the foreground starts to become more of the background and the background starts to become more of the foreground. And then you find the middle way between the two as we navigate our way through everyday life. So coming back to the um, um, the uh, the story, then um, basically um, the um, one of the um, the verse in the in the in the every koan has a verse that's written by the guy who collected the koans, and in the verse he says. Um, Coming from the west and directly pointing, so the Bodhidharma came from the west, China was, um, India was the west, um, and, and, and directly pointing. All the trouble springs from this. The jungle of monks at sixes and sevens is your fault after all. So, in a sense, the, the kind of Buddhism that probably would have been dominant in China at that time was the, the notion of a progressive path and uh, the Eightfold Noble Path, and you would, you would, you know, do your best to cultivate that path, and you would gain merit, and maybe in a in a you know another few hundred lifetimes you might be born as a Buddha. So there was this kind of like unattainable sense of enlightenment, and it was it was out of it was transcendental. It was not in this in this world, whereas traditions like Zen. And uh, would actually directly point to it here now that it's not something that was outside of this world, that it was here now. Subtle, difficult to grasp, but here. And uh, one didn't have to wait a hundred lifetimes to realize it. And um, the um, this directly pointing comes from the four principles of Bodhidharma which are very famous and uh, a special transmission outside sutras, no dependence on words or phrases. So again it's a kind of, you know, um, it's a radical, I mean Zen Buddhists did study the scriptures and so on but it's, it's saying, you know, the radicalness of Zen was actually saying well you don't have to worry about all those rituals and all those scriptures, it's this directly pointing to it. And directly pointing to the human mind, meaning directly pointing to this boundlessness, to this unconditioned awareness. And seeing into one's nature, which is that boundlessness. And, uh, and that's Buddha. Uh, uh, so, um, this notion of, of, of pointing is um, something which is... Um, all, all anybody can ever do, you, the, the actual realization of awakening is something you all will taste yourself. And um, it's important to verify it experientially uh, and see the freedom that lies within that awareness. 
and then being able to use that awareness to to um, um, embody it and bring it into the body. So coming back to the ordinary mind, the Zen school, um, and Joko's work. So Joko, um, uh, we start to think of inquiry. Joko didn't use the word in- inquiry or inquiry, but um, she kind of like didn't necessarily name it that, but in a, um, she would encourage all her students to um, pay careful attention to what was happening in their everyday lives, and especially in their relationships. And she was also very keen, she used to have a practice called thought labelling and uh, experiencing. She wanted, she wanted us to get the idea and, and, and become aware of thoughts and how, when we were identified or fused with a thought, how that would bring about a, a reaction in the body. But if we were able to shift just to the body experience and somehow uproot that belief in the thought, that it would... the reaction would die down, would dissolve. Um, that was one of the ways she taught. And when we're on retreat, we're doing a lot of sitting, we're being with our bodies a lot. And we'd, she would always say, come back to the body, come back to the direct experiencing, the direct sensations. But if you want to, for you know five or ten minutes of your sitting period, be aware of your thoughts, and if you want to name them specifically, you know, believing the thought, I am whatever, or having the thought he is or she is, or just trying to get those. We have no, like, you know, the notion that thoughts just arise, we have no judgments arise, we're not, it's, you know, we're, we can't control that, but, but we can <coughs> see it when it arises. Even really simple things, too, when, when you're sitting in awareness, like, uh, um, how we actually uh, notice our thoughts influence our actions. Like, uh, um, and I just, just, just recently, just now, a few minutes ago, sitting, and the thought comes to my mind: "Oh, the umbrella might rain." So then I, I go and get the umbrella. Or you might be sitting, oh, "Wouldn't mind a coffee." Have a thought. So notice how the, the thoughts influence our actions all the time. Um, it's not that we decide to go and get umbrella. The actual a thought comes into the mind, umbrella, brain, and ah, right. So, and we're often unconscious of that. So, when we're practicing, we can become more conscious of the thoughts that are coming into our minds and passing through to our awareness. And we're, we're constantly making this distinction between awareness and thoughts. It's really, really important because in our default sort of mind, in our dualistic world, we don't do that very often. We just are living in our thoughts and in our concepts. And we're not coming back to being awareness. With uh, Barry, um, um, Barry's just starting to use the word in, in inquiry. Um, but um, basically, I mean, uh, one of the fun things that Barry likes to do with a, a student when they first come to Zen practice is say something like, well, what are you, when they come on a retreat, well, what are you doing here? That's his kind of starting sort of question. And that has two aspects to it. One is what kind of, what are you doing when you're sitting? What's the practice? What's your meditation practice? And starting to look at that. 
But it's also a little bit deeper in, in, in the sense that most of us come to practice to gain something. So his inquiry is often about trying to uncover you know, what, what do we see as the problem and what do we see as what we want to gain? What do we see as the problem and how we're trying to fix it? Um, what do we see as the problem how we're trying to control it? How are, we, how are we going to turn this practice into a means to an end? How are we going to use this as a technique to change something? And you will find that uh, that's our culture, but that's not Zen. And um, so, and it's not non-duality neither. Um, so it's about continuously pointing uh, in, in Barry's sort of inquiry is about seeing all the subtle ways that we're seeking some kind of what he calls curative fantasies. What's going to fix us? What's going to cure us? Because we're always coming from the assumption of deficiency, of lack. We're always coming from the assumption there's something wrong with us. And so Barry's inquiry is about trying to undermine that and to see that this moment is complete just as it is. We are complete just as we are. And uh, the paradoxical thing is that the more we're able to start practicing no gain, um, transformation does occur. But it doesn't occur because we're trying for it to occur. Um, it occurs because we're actually embodying our inherent nature, which is already complete. Um, this kind of inquiry is also found in what are known as non-dual teachers. There's a, another uh, teacher I work with called Peter Fenner. He's uh, from the Tibetan tradition and he lives in Canberra. And, uh, and he uses um, a, non-form, a form of non-dual inquiry and non-dual therapy. And his work is um, it's a little bit hard to... Um, um, Summarize, um, but um, there's another uh, non-dual teacher in the states called uh, Scott Killaby, and uh, he's been um, experimenting with developing a form of inquiry that, which is simple and teachable, and uh, and I think he's he's uh, um, his form of inquiry is um, quite um, accessible. And um, he, he actually has a, a form of inquiry that he calls uh, unfindability. Um, so, so I was just trying to introduce you to that a little bit today. Um, uh, but before we do that, there is a very simple form of inquiry, and it's just basically asking yourself the question, what is this? So, you know, whether it's on a retreat or whether it's in your everyday life, if you're experiencing anxiety in your belly or something like that, just speak. The practice is to actually you bring you, you drop into awareness, become being aware, become presence, rest in the presence, and allow. This is the key thing. Just allow the anxiety to be there, and uh, just gently, just gently inquire into it. What are you trying to tell me? You know what's What's the uh, communication here? And it could be something as simple as, oh, I'm, you know, I'm feeling a bit nervous, I'm going to stuff up this afternoon's talk. Um, ah, 
So you see, you already, you welcome this, you know, you welcome it, and you, 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 you would say, well, what are you telling me? That's a very simple form of inquiry, you know, just the communication that's coming to us, that you'll find in the anxiety, and you might find it will deliver you um, the, um, the thought that's, um, that's driving the anxiety. Not, not complex, but the important thing is to practice being with the body sensations and asking any question. And once you've done that, then it's a kind of, you're wanting to actually, you know, diffuse from the thought and just be with the sensations. Just be with the moment. The sensation is always just this moment. And the thought's always something that's going to happen in the future, in that particular example. You know, the, the reverse of that is so many people get caught in regret. Uh, I wish I hadn't, you know, done that or decided that five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago. Then I wouldn't be here where I am now. It's, it's, it's just the reverse side of the coin. It's, a, it's, a, it's just this kind of self-blame and, and, and unacceptability of where you are right now, which is your path. Wherever you are, that's your path. This moment is your path. This moment is it. You know, it's all come down to this. Always. Um, another form of inquiry. I mean, sometimes um, I was working with someone and, and a sense of um, uh, an overwhelming fear that was coming up and... Um, they weren't quite sure why uh, this fear was so overwhelming, and uh, and uh, sometimes it's, it's uh, these communications that are coming from the fear. Sometimes, in some forms of inquiry, you might represent them or symbolise them. As, so, in this case, in this particular instance, was we represented it as the as the as the little girl part of the this person and, uh, and how the, uh, at a particular time in the little girl's life um, she had felt such and such a way and the current present situation in the life was replicating that so it was bringing up this unaccountable intense fear because it didn't seem to correspond to her adult self as to why she'd be experiencing so much fear. Um, but when she was able to sort of see it represented as the little girl within her. Uh, she, and, and, and she had some good practice, so she was able to rest in awareness and actually dissolve the fear in her present awareness, presence. And, and, and the fear diminished once she'd actually been able to... And sometimes in that kind of visualisation process you can conduct an interior dialogue with that Heart kind of thing. Um, so, in in the, uh, um, the this other form of inquiry, I'm going to introduce you to. So, in a way, I'm trying to kind of give you some tools that, in the same way as you can sit zazen or just practice being mindful and being present throughout the day, you can sometimes use these inquiry tools, just asking yourself questions, uh, in the same way. 
and it's a very embodied process, so it's not distinct from the, the meditation process or the presencing process. 